time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this People. No, no good people in America. Welcome back to the hey. Cold War. Hey, welcome back to the Cold War. Except the good Jews, right? That's all I'm going to say, oh. the good Jews. No, no, I can't. Well, it's, yes, it's topical to the show. I'm not being no. anti-Semitical. No, 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 it's, no. It's, it's the show. You'll understand when we gave, everyone calm the fuck down. <laughs> wait till we, it's a joke about the show, which we're getting right. into. We know. That's why yes. Ray's laughing. Well, Ray laughs at anything, let's be I honest. Do. But I'm a happy person. Yeah. <laughs> you're drunk, is what it is. It's called medicine. It's, it's, it's the only way you can get yeah. to a show these days. Is to and be I'm in. faced I'm in my new brown, excuse me, my new purple chair. I'll send you a picture of it. I think Prince would be proud. It's a little antique I got at a local store. I said, you know, I deserve a throne and not just a toilet, a real throne. So it's bought myself. It's purple. It's purple. Purple when you started. (laughs) Purple when you got it. And now. Be brown very soon. Brownish. I'll send you a picture. It's it's quite quite lovely. So I'm happy. I'm happy. Can we get on with the show now? Oh, God, yes. Come on, we've got a lot to get through, man. Do it. Let's go. Chop, chop. On Friday, March 21st, 1947, just nine days after the proclamation of the Truman Doctrine and about three months before my mother was born. Wow. Harry S. stands for shouldn't be President Truman, (laughs) issued Executive Order 9835, which established the Federal Loyalty Security Program. Now, we could go into a lot of... Yeah. We could go into a lot of detail explaining what that was. Right. Except we already did it on on September 7th last year in episode 92, so... Why don't we just go have a listen to what Cam and Ray had to say <laughs> back then? Back in the day? In, this way, these change. Do you want to mention economics or do you want to mention oh, free loving people? So that shit just sounds good. Term and that reasonable grounds exist for belief that the person involved is disloyal. Here we go. We can do it your way, but don't get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. But don't get crazy. That's what Truman bon said. Quee quee. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but don't get crazy. Um, now, the order specified that one criteria they would use to determine that reasonable grounds exist for belief that the person involved is disloyal would be if they had membership in, affiliation with, or sympathetic association with any organisation determined by the Attorney General to be totalitarian, fascist, communist or subversive or advocating or approving the forceful denial of constitutional rights to other persons or seeking to alter the form of government of the United States by unconstitutional means. And then they said, not like the American Revolution, that was good. (laughs) It's a good... 
that was a good altering of the form of government by unconstitutional means, but not, not but that's that's no. done. Yeah, One and no done. More. We're out no now. More. No more. No more overthrowing governments here. One and done. Yes. The, Ameri- the American way. Um, now, President Truman would later complain, Ray, yes. that there was a great wave of hysteria sweeping the nation, this anti-communist hysteria mm-hmm. that it turned into, uh, even though he was really largely responsible for creating <laughs> that hysteria by really? suggesting right. that uh, millions of people who worked for the federal government were possibly communist spies and needed to be weeded out. Yes. Did we give his quote to the Pennsylvania governor, George Earl, on that show? I honestly can't remember. Because Do not remember either. So why don't you, why don't you right. whip that out? <laughs> so because but he knew it was a political ploy, he did it after the uh, Democrats got you know slapped in the, in the uh, midterm elections uh, against the Republicans. But he tells this governor, people are very much wrought about the communist bugaboo. But I am of the opinion that the country is perfectly safe so far as communism is concerned. We have too many sane people. So he's telling this guy, yeah, I'm just doing this to cover my ass because we got shellacked in the election. And if we don't do something, we'll get shellacked in the next election. So I'm going to set this up. It's going to be temporary. We'll go through the motions. But at least we can say we're doing something. It gets totally out of hand. And like you said, he complains about it later. But at the same time, he's telling good friends, look, there's nothing going on. We're fine. Because why? We have a lot of smart, sane people in this country. Everything's going to be okay. Hey. And that's not the case. Yeah, between the launching of the loyalty program uh, in March of 1947 and December 1952, when they wrapped it up, about 6.6 million people were investigated, (laughs) all federal employees. Right. Not a single case (laughs) of espionage was uncovered, (laughs) but about 500 people were dismissed. Right. Uh, and charged with questionable loyalty. They were classified as being disloyal. But the definition of disloyal was never really defined. Well, what, what, what is disloyal? Ah, you know, just, just disloyal. Like don't, don't beauty. Like the way, don't it's like an, the way you looked at me. That's it's in disloyal. the eye of the beholder. It really is. And yes. all of these trials were conducted... With secret evidence, there's no judge, no jury, um, often secret and usually paid informers involved. Psst, hey, 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 I want you to say something for me. Hey, right, here's 20, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's here's 500 bucks. Right. If you go and tell them that that, that you're a secret communist. Okay. Who do I tell that that committee over there? Just, yeah, just tell okay. them that you're a secret hey. communist, then they will kick you out of your job. Hey, American assholes, I'm a communist. What the fuck are you going to do about it? Because the Constitution says I can be... Oh, I'm fired? Okay. Never mind. Thank you. <laughs> now, the government agencies were permitted to fire oh, employees yeah. without due process. You could just be fired. If you were accused mm-hmm. of disloyalty... You were not allowed to know what the charges were or who made them. 
Right. And you, you weren't allowed any right of response. You were just, no, sorry, no. can't tell you. It's a secret. <laughs> uh, but you're out of here. Yeah. It was a purge, right? It was Here's a, a purge. But exactly. They didn't, they, they didn't purge many. They only purged a few hundred. Um, yeah. so went on for years and years, cost millions of dollars. It's right. a bit like the Mueller report, really. It was an earlier version of the Mueller report. <laughs> Warm up. Took years, spent yeah. a lot of money. At the end, they went, no, nah, we got nothing. Sorry, got nothing. Yeah. No, no, well, nothing. If I can add on to that part, because we've said this before, and we've seen this a billion times in this show and other shows, um, it's all about budgets. It's all about enlarging your office, your influence, that kind of stuff. You know, like we said... FBI Director Hoover was always putting pressure on the president to enlarge the FBI, not for his own sake, but for the good of the country. And this executive order helped. And like you were saying, between 1948 and 1958, they ran, you know, 4.5 million reviews and they did 27,000 field, uh, field investigations. Yes, this obviously cost a ton of money and they did not discover one dangerous conspiracy against this country. It, it was just insane. And I did want to ask you, because I was trying to find some kind of argument against this. Like you were saying, you can't you can't um, question your accusers. They don't have to be under oath, but you do. And so the best I could come up with was the Sixth Amendment, the, uh, that part of the Bill of the Rights that says uh, certain rights in all criminal prosecutions. One of the rights from the Sixth Amendment says you have the right to um, meet with your accuser. It's called the Confrontation Clause. The Confrontation Clause guarantees criminal defendants the opportunity to face the prosecution's witnesses and their testimony. But the government was brilliant about this with the executive order because it wasn't a pr- criminal prosecution per se. The worst thing that was probably going to happen, or at least did happen with these guys, was they lost their job and it wasn't a criminal court per se. So I think they tried to skirt the Sixth Amendment by just saying, if we think you're guilty, you're out of here. And so it was just, like you said, a witch hunt. They got rid of people they just probably wanted to get rid of. It was the old Caesar's wife. Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. Exactly. Argument. Yeah, you're yeah. all Caesar's wives. I'm Caesar. <laughs> you're all my wives. You my wife now. Um, David... My- yeah. David Lilenthal, who mm-hmm. we've mentioned in earlier episodes, he was the chairman of the United States Atomic Energy Commission, apparently mm-hmm. wrote in his diary, in practical effect, the usual rule that men are presumed innocent until proved guilty is in reverse. Yes. Absolutely. Years later, in an interview with journalist Carl Bernstein, most famous for... Um, deep Throat, uh, uh, Nixon, oh, yeah. oh, water, he was good at deep Watergate. <laughs> yeah. Woodward and Bernstein, yeah, right. the uh, Watergate. Uh, Robert Redford. You know, breaking that story. Yeah, he is right. Robert Redford. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carl Bernstein interviewed Clark Clifford, who, again, we've talked about before, particularly mm-hmm. back in the old Atomics uh, episodes. He was a senior advisor to Truman. Um, and he, he, he put it this way, it was a political problem. Truman was going to run in 48, and that was it. My own feeling was that there was not a serious problem. I felt the whole thing was being manufactured. We never had a serious discussion about a real loyalty problem. The president didn't attach fundamental importance to the so-called communist scare. He thought it was a lot of baloney. But political pressures were such that he had to recognize it. There was no substantive problem. We did not believe there was a real problem. A problem was being manufactured. Right. Huh. So, 
there you go. It's pretty yeah. much from the horse's mouth. There, you know, senior advisor <laughs> Truman, Clark Clifford, going, yeah, yeah listen, yeah. there was no, there was no communist thing. We just, we had to do it because we had to look like we pretended yeah. that there was. Right, but, but like, yes, yes. Oh, I was just going to say, but you know, for years, millions of Americans are being, you know raked over the coals and yes. looked at and examined. and Everyone knows this is going on. There's like, oh, my God, the communists have infiltrated our government. <laughs> I mean, it started to create this panic that, the you know, the, the America was going to be overthrown by the communists. So um, the great wave of hysteria that Truman complained about, he in large part created here, uh, there are other forces and we're going to get into that, but he uh, he played a large part. He, you know, he could, uh, of as president, have said, everyone just calm the fuck down. There's no communist infiltration. Whoa, Don't be stupid. Whoa, whoa. Get on. Get on with the fucking life. Everyone relate. It's like you go to the doctor and, you know, you, you, have, a, you have a spot on your lip and your doctor goes... Shit, that, that could that that could be cancer. Yeah. Uh, we're going to send yeah. you in for a barrage of tests. Mm. That could you could pretty much be dead in a week I'm gonna if we don't to... get straight onto that. Yeah. Oh my god, the sirens are going off. People are screaming in the hallways. <laughs> you know, he gets an axe. You could be turning into a zombie. Instead, <laughs> what you want your doctors to go? You go get out of here with that! Get out! That's oh, nothing. You're being yeah. crazy. It's just a spot on your lip. Get, yeah. get back to life. I'm not going to. I'm not saying you're going to die, but if you could pay your bill up in full, that'd be great. Okay, <laughs> I really appreciate it. And I can't remember last time when we when we talked about this. If we talked about Agloso, the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations, and just and this was a part of the executive order, basically. The FBI, I think it was the FBI, came up with a, a list of different um, entities that had to be looked out for. And I mean, and this gets crazy. So they come up with this like 41 groups thought to be the most dangerous within the purview of the recent executive order that we're talking about. And again, these people haven't done anything wrong. This is the equivalent of the thought police. But this list that comes out by the FBI, it gets used by the, uh, it gets used by state and local governments, it gets used by the military, defense contractors hotels, the Treasury Department, the State Department. And and so again, if you end up on this list, and it doesn't matter how you end up on this list, because from what we've just been talking about for the last couple of minutes, it sounds like it's impossible to get your name off the list. That's it. You're fucked. You can't get a job. No one's going to trust you. You it's, it's just your life is over. And I really don't think Truman meant for all this to happen. He was just trying to cover his ass because the Democrats Democrats got a shellacking in the midterm elections. Yeah, well, one, one of the... Uh people whose parents got caught up in this was Carl Bernstein. His oh, wow. parents got uh, sacked from their jobs, so he had a vested interest yeah. in this. Get him, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, years later, apparently Truman would admit to friends that uh, you know. this had been a... Right, this ahead. had been a horrible, horrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> the loyalty program. I have one regret. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah no. Dropping, dropping <laughs> atomic bombs <laughs> on innocent Japanese civilians. Twice? That's fine. Twice, but uh, <laughs> the loyalty program. Yeah, uh, those four hundred people they got fired. It. I feel bad. Yeah. I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I feel bad. <laughs> okay. Now, of course. 
Well, we, we have to think about this in context of what was going on in the world at the moment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, you know, we, we're going to stop and start a lot in our show and, and try and cover all of these events rather than right. rush through them and, and do them simultaneously. We, we don't rush. We, we like to stop and take our time. Yeah. Uh, get right. We get paid by the minute, not <laughs> by... Uh, <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, yeah. Like weed trimmers out the front of my window. Um <laughs> 1948, the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia right. kicked out the non-communists from the government. Right. And people were like, ooh, communists. Ooh. The Soviet Union uh, in that year blockaded Berlin, mm-hmm. which led to the airlift, which we're going to get to uh, right. in our series soon. Um, of course, in 1949, there was the communist victory in China, which mm-hmm. we'll get to. Mm-hmm. That year, the Soviet Union exploded their first atomic bomb. Then in 1950, the Korean War began. Again, we're going to get to all of that. We're going to get yeah, to all of hold that your in time. <coughs> hold your horses. In time. Yeah. Whoa, Nelly. In good time, we're going to get to all of these things. Uh, Paul, is that, that you? Is. Okay. I don't, know what, right. don't know what voice that is, what I'm doing there, but there's something. Generic Southern. Generic Southern. Okay. Bit of Dana Carvey in there somewhere. Yeah, I think. buried. Um, uh, anywho, uh, and these were all portrayed to the public back in America as signs of a world communist conspiracy. The communists right. have snuck into these countries and have taken them over. Now, of course, China, Korea, Indochina, as we know, and the Philippines, these were all local communist movements, had nothing to do with the Russians. Yeah. As we know from the little bit of a look we've had at Indochina so far, the Vietnamese wished the Russians would get involved. The oh, Russians please. like yeah, Dream of busy. Russians. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the same in all these other places as well. The, this, these weren't being uh, – uh, these, these communist movements weren't being dictated by Stalin right. or the Russians yeah. any more than the, the Russian revolution was being dictated by Marx. He was dead. Right. All of these people had read <laughs> Marx. They they had seen what's going on in the Soviet Union, the, the right. ability of the people to rise up and overthrow a corrupt oligarchy, and they were like, oh, yeah, we want some of that. Yeah. Give us some of that. I'll take a slice, But please. Uh, it, it wasn't, as it was being portrayed at the time, the uh, sneaky Soviets uh, insinuating their steely mm-hmm. schlongs into the uh, <laughs> supple. No. Uh, no. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to go with some ye- <laughs> imagery. Yellow, yellow journalism tabloid uh, alliteration here. Gotcha. I've been reading too much James Elroy recently. Is what's going on? Gotcha. Um, wasn't that? It was just people rising up. It was a general wave of anti-imperialist insurrection around yeah. the world, but it was portrayed to Americans uh, and to the British Commonwealth as Soviet expansion. An iron curtain has fallen across (laughs) Europe. Uh, It was just people rising up. People were like, we're fucking sick of being treated like shit and being poor. Exactly. uh, And having a handful of rich people running things. Uh, We're going to take some. We're going to take some of what we want. Well, let me ask you this real quick. I mean, do you, at this point in American history, do you blame the American public for 
giving in to these fears because that that's one that's one thing that's always fascinated me about this is everybody's afraid but nobody knows or hardly knows any communists in the country it's not like the russians are going to come over and invade or the chinese are going to come over and invade or whoever this would be an internal thing but if if it's hard to to name five or ten communists that you would know. Obviously, the vast majority of the people in the country are not communists. They're given into this fear, but this is what they're being told. And in some in some ways, you can't really blame them because they don't know any better. But I don't know if they should. But when you have politicians and the church and the newspapers all telling you kind of the same thing, how, how would you know any different? Yeah, look, uh, you know the, these are. Even even in the best of times, you mm-hmm. have a very small percentage of any population that is going to feel the motivation to read and think uh, deeply. Um, most people are just going to believe what they're told and yeah. uh, get on with stuff. You know, they they, they just want to go to work, come home, bang their wife, bang their mistress <laughs> uh, if they're. You know, Catholic priests bang little boys. Um, have have something to eat, have something to drink. Uh, go watch a football game. Yeah, and, uh, oh, play the poker life. with the lad. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Speak, speaking of which, uh, that kind of news. My mother, um, who I love very much, um, sent me really? a. Yeah, 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 yeah. She she sent I me. Thought a- you're a bit of a mummy's boy. I get the impression that you're a bit of a mummy's boy. Uh, sure, I'll go with that. Did she always tell you? When you what? got out of the bubble, did she always tell you that you were really special? <laughs> you were going to grow up to be really special one day? Uh, no. Little Raymond. <laughs> does she, what does she call you? What's her nickname for you? Uh, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Ba- baby Cakes? <laughs> Is it Baby Cakes? No. No, that's your name for me. No, but she sent me a clip. There's a preacher in Florida saying that, and he was very serious, they're... they're because now all burgers and stuff like that are meatless, it's like, you know, not meat, it's something else. It's these pharmaceutical com- companies and these corporations that are trying to change the very DNA of humans by not letting them have meat. And if your DNA changes and you're no longer technically human, then you can't be saved by Jesus because he's only going to send, he's only going to take certain humans up to heaven. That's the latest, and I shit your, you not. I shit. Does you your not. mother and my mother like read the same websites because that's <laughs> the same kind of shit my mother would say. And I just went, Mom, really? don't, don't, don't look at this. Come on, come on, <laughs> please. You're embarrassing. But anyway, oh, I love mothers. her. I love her. Mothers, yeah. God love them. Now, um, <laughs> yes, people. Were, well, yeah. like, people were scared, and they were being told to be. We'll get into more of this over the next couple of episodes. All the people that were telling them to be scared, right. be scared. Yeah, and. I don't. I think this is. Well, Americans have been scared a lot. I mean, the whole yellow journalism thing had been scaring people for a long time. Back to the, yeah. the Spanish, uh, the war against Spain, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But again, this is just this a big wave of keep Americans scared. If you if you keep people scared, yeah, uh, they will. Do what you want them to do to a large extent. Mm-hmm. They will support what you want them to support. If They're you, looking for leadership, you, yeah. Yeah, and they will assent to mm-hmm. legislation or to military action or Take to, away my rights. They'll give you their money. Right. If they're scared, people are relatively easily manipulated if you get them scared. Mm-hmm. 
you know, if I come to you and say, Ray, um, let me have sex with your wife. Yeah. Uh, Again? Okay. It's not a good example because you... <laughs> Damn. Anyway. You would you would say, okay. But no, for, but for a normal person, you go, let me have sex with your wife. They go, no, fuck off. Yeah. If you say, listen, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 your children are all going to die of a virus mm-hmm. in the next 30 minutes unless I have sex with your wife, then you're mm-hmm. like, quick. You know, you're pulling your panties down yourself. Like, get in there. You're lubing her up. Pushing your buttocks. Yeah. Good plot, good plot for a film. I, I, <laughs> is I it? Should, is should it? write that. Yeah. Oh. Good plot for a film. Anyway. Point Because <laughs> you're scared, right? right? You don't let people right. do anything. You're Common scared. sense goes out the window. Exactly. You're like, oh, shit, don't have time to think logically <laughs> and rationally about that. Better just save my act. Children. Yeah. Got to act. Get in there. Um, and, and that's what happened with this. Uh, there was this fearful reaction across the United States. People became convinced that they had to have absolute security and preserve the established order. Yeah. Which is exactly what the established order wanted them to think. <laughs> now, keep in mind that all of these communist uprisings in all of those countries that I mentioned that are happening after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, could have happened in the United States. And the elite in the United States were worried that something like that might happen. Right. You've got to you know, keep in mind the historical context. 20s were a boom time for the elite. Uh, then it all crashed. Mm-hmm. Lives were ruined. Great Depression. Like, fucking horrible. People are starving. People are dying. People are poor. People can't get jobs for years. Oh, yeah. uh, and and America's going shit. Like this is not the American dream that we were sold. Right. Uh, but but the elite was still living in Fifth Avenue. The elite yeah. weren't you know doing it tough. They were rocking and rolling. Um, so people were like, you know what? It's time for a change. Uh, yeah. We need to do something about this. And, and FDR had come in, and he's he's like tweaking it. He's not like, yeah, let's throw all the bankers in jail. Right. He's like, well, uh, right. we're going to introduce some regulations. Thank we're gonna, you. We're going to tone it down a little bit. Yeah. But he's the not excesses. a commie. Right. He's not a socialist. He's not He's not Ho Chi Minh. Right. He's not, like, demanding the rights of the, the people. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's just tweaking the edges. And there were a lot of fears and genuine fears that uh, a movement could start in the United States. Mm-hmm. That would gain steam. It wasn't big then, as as we said before. No one was like all the like Clark Clifford said. Like it was a load of baloney. We 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 weren't riddled with right. communists, but there were small communist organisations and small fascist organisations before the war. Mm-hmm. It could have it could have turned into something, right? And and the elite didn't want to take any chance of that, so they they want to stamp it out as much as possible by scaring people that uh, the end of times is approaching. Well, the way you put that just now, it's kind of ironic because, yes, a lot of people were suffering. And maybe if someone like FDR had not come along and had not tweaked the system and gave the people some relief, obviously he could have did more and sometimes he lost and sometimes he was checked. But you, you could argue that if he had not come along and the Econ- and the Great Depression continued on and we didn't get involved in the war, there could have been a very serious um, chance of a revolution. So in some ways, he ends up, you know, saving the country, the status quo, because he only tinkered with the edges. I, I just think the irony of that is pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, 
In June of 1947, US Congress passed something called the Taft-Hartley Act. Mm-hmm. You aware of that? Did you read up on that? No, tell me about it. Oh, I think I snuck that in at the last minute last night. Um, so the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, a.k.a. the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947... Sounds wholesome. Does, yeah. It contained a provision... That said, if labor unions wanted to have access to the services of the National Labor Relations Board when they were having disputes with their management, the leaders of the unions had to sign affidavits certifying that they were neither communists nor communist sympathizers. It's not illegal to be a communist in America! I'm finished. It's not illegal, but uh, (laughs) it's also frowned upon. It is now, yeah. So the background to this is, you know, we talked about Harry Bridges. Um, you know, before the war, I said there were a number of huge strikes as employees, right. the workers were saying, you know what, we, we want a better share of the wealth uh, mm-hmm. that we're producing. And unless you give it to us, we're going to go on strike. Right. And then during the war... Harry and the other union leaders said, "Right, okay, we're not going to we're not going to strike during the war. We're we're all behind the war. Let's go fight the war." Right. The war finished, and they all went on strike again. In fact, after the end of the war, in the first year after VJ Day, right, uh, more than five million American workers were involved in strikes. Whoa! It was the largest strike action in U.S. history. Damn. Now, one of the things that it happened back in 1935 as mm-hmm. part of the New Deal, FDR had introduced the National Labor Relations Act, which had established for the first time in the United States the right of workers to join unions, uh, the right of collective bargaining, mm-hmm. and the right to engage in strikes. Because you remember before that, we've touched on this a few times in this and the bullshit filter, when um, people went on strike... <coughs> Uh, the governors often of those states would just send in the fucking army yeah. to bash heads. Right. Fuck you, you can't go on strike. Yeah. In fact, it, 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 they tried to do it again in uh, 1936. We talked about Frank Murphy, governor yes. of Michigan, automobile worker strike, and they wanted to send in the army. And he was like, no, don't send in the <laughs> army. Let's talk. just sit down and talk. <laughs> and talk. then they called him, they, they dragged him in front of the Dyes Committee That's and right. called him a Tommy. That's right. And destroyed his re election campaign. Jesus. Um, so the, before then, in America, if you tried to go on strike, they would just come down and bludgeon you. Cops, right. cops in the army, uh, the the National Guard would swoop in and beat you senseless <laughs> with uh, batons. God, yes. If you go read um, People's History of the United States, it's got a lot of that kind of stuff in. It covers a lot of that history, mm. which is not very well known because it, you know, right. they don't like to talk about it. But that's capitalism. That's unbridled capitalism. Yeah. Is uh, you know, they're like, well, fuck the workers, man. Now, so that had so that had happened, and then so that in in after the war, people were going on strike. So, nineteen forty seven, Congress passed a law that said uh, if you want to be ha- you know have access to the government resources for ending these strikes, you have to sign affidavits certifying you're not a communist mm-hmm. or a communist sympathizer. Now, of course, there were a lot of uh, people in unions that probably were communist sympathizers. Yeah. And not Social not system. Russian sympathizers, communist sympathizers. Right. They're like, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we 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 want 
to uh, re-engineer uh, the basis of our mm-hmm. socio-economic uh, deal here by sharing right. the wealth uh, between the the workers and the uh, the, the elite, mm-hmm. the industrialists. No, can't do that. Not allowed anymore. If you want to be, if you want to be a union leader, you have to sign sign away right. your right to be a communist sympathizer. Uh, so, God. after the war, workers wanted a fair share of the economic boom that was happening in the US. We've talked a lot about how the uh, mm-hmm. Bretton Woods Agreement made the US dollar the the de facto global currency, and the rest of mm-hmm. the major economies in the world had been crushed by World War II. US, in many ways, economically, is the last man standing. And yes. there's an economic boom happening. The workers are like, hey, we want we want some of that. And the industrialists are like, we're shutting that shit down. <laughs> I mean, people did get a, you know, obviously, you know, today we look back at the 50s as a bit of a, a, a glory days boom time in the US economy, right. paying 98% yes. taxes. Um, and everyone's happy. Everyone's, you know, Don Draper driving the, a new car and living in a nice house and um, right. banging, banging secretaries. And, oh, it's a good time for men. Anyway, oh, good time for men. Good, good time times. for white men. Oh, good times good, for white right. men. That's, yeah. that on we should t-shirt. probably qualify that. Good, yeah. yeah. Good <laughs> 1950s. Times. Good times. A good time for <laughs> Good time for white men. To be a white yeah. man. In America. Um, Now, Truman actually tried to veto the Taft-Harley Act, but the Congress overrode his veto. It was a Republican-controlled Congress, but the veto or the the override of the veto uh, had a fair share of Democratic support. Mm -hmm. 106 out of 177 Democrats in the House voted for the override and 20 out of 42 wow. democrats in the senate so more way more than half in the house so yes was about eight is about 60s broke ranks yeah yeah about like i don't know 60 70 percent of the democrats in the house overrode their own president's yes. veto and slightly less than Damn. half of the democrats in the senate now on top of that the taft hartley act taft hartley act not only said you couldn't be a communist if you wanted to be a union leader. It prohibited jurisdictional right. strikes, wildcat strikes, political strikes, solidarity strikes, secondary boycotts, secondary and mass picketing, closed shops, monetary donations by unions to federal political campaigns, and also required Damn. the union officers well to played. sign non-communist affidavits. Uh, and by the way, We're going to treat you like a- shit, but you better not be a communist. Right, as far sorry, as I know, no. still in effect today, the Taft-Hartley Act in the United States. You know, when when uh, Trump was elected president and uh, Democrats uh, mm-hmm. in the US uh, were going apeshit, losing their shit, uh, we need to do something. We're <laughs> marching in the streets. Right. I said, why don't, you, why don't you just go on strike? We'll just shut the country down for a month. Uh, they'll get the message. Just shut the country down. Just go on strike. And they were like, oh, I don't think we should go that far. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> turns out they probably can't. You, you, you can't go on strike anymore in the US for some yes. reason. It's I illegal. guess there must be some avenue yeah. for strikes, but uh, it's highly limited by the sounds of it, right. thanks to the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. Good job, big business. So it was in yeah. this climate yeah. of 
anti-communist terror that mm-hmm. HUAC was established to take down Hollywood, the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, FBI officials during the 1930s had become very interested in communist influence in Hollywood. Their concern, mm-hmm. as it was with Harry Bridges, was that people, you know, secret communists might be able to influence large swathes of the American population and could oh. turn America into uh, a communist hotbed. Um, not, not a hot box, which is where you, I think, not f- a- fart <laughs> under the doona and then pull it over somebody's head. Right. Stick- they did think yeah. it was going to be a communist yeah. hot box. Just that wasn't funny, farting Cam. and pulling right. stuff over people's right. heads. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not now, funny. Not even in Vegas. They were, not funny. Yeah. The, the FBI were closely monitoring uh, Hollywood types uh, as well as the, the so-called popular mm-hmm. front politics of the 1930s. We should... Um, right. Cover that at some stage. I've been reading a lot about that in the. Uh, I've been reading Robert Cato's uh, Johnson biographies uh, again, getting back into that, and uh, you know his uh, Johnson's father uh, was heavily involved in the Popular Front politics of the the nineteen thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there, there was this thing called the Popular Front for people who don't know, uh, particularly non Americans, I guess. It was a it was a political movement uh, during the uh, depression era. A lot of radicals and liberals trying to promote neutral, anti-interventionist foreign policy, fighting for the rights of farmers, and all this kind of stuff. It was really starting to get a, a leg right. up in different parts of the U.S., uh, particularly in the the sort of the agricultural districts and belt, and. Um, the FBI were concerned, Hoover was concerned that communists were playing a big role in, in making, this a, making this a thing. But by 1942, the, the FBI was really starting to look deeply into communist influence in the production of movies, not just the, the unions involved mm-hmm. in uh, behind the scenes in Hollywood, but actually writers and directors and actors in the films. They started to feel like they could use this as a propaganda tool. They Mm. created something called COMPIC, the Communist Infiltration of the Motion Picture Industry. Uh, (laughs) Ran for about 14 (laughs) years. COMPIC. Whoa. It had two main goals, this investigation, to determine the extent of communist penetration of film industry unions and to identify communist activities by screenwriters, directors, actors, executives, and the, as one FBI report put it, the so-called intellectuals in general. (laughs) Because, Ray, if it's one thing you don't want in a democracy, it's allowing intellectuals to uh, gain any sway. Like, if you let intellectuals get involved, people might start thinking. Uh, And where would we be then if the people are thinking for themselves? You can't have that. Okay, well, according to FBI documents that I have been reading, the Communist Party in Moscow 
only started mm. to really think seriously about the propaganda value of Hollywood in 1934, five years before the war. Uh, wow. And it all started when a film called Thunder Over Mexico came out in 1933. This is a film made by famous Russian director Sergei Eisenstein mm-hmm. and written by the famous American socialist author Upton Sinclair. You ever read any of Upton Sinclair's books? Uh, back in college, I did the one about the, the meatpacking, uh, the jungle. That was a long time ago. It was quite disgusting. Yeah. But that was it. Yeah. Yeah. This guy was uh, you know, a major activist, journalist, novelist, for people who don't know who he was. 1906, mm-hmm. he became pretty famous for this book called The Jungle, which talked about the labor conditions and the sanitary conditions in the U.S. meatpacking industry, and it caused a huge uproar that yeah. uh, in large part contributed to a bill being passed uh, a few months after the book came out, the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act that we talked about back on our Bullshit Filter War on Drugs series. Yeah. Because it was just a lot of dirty, crappy shit going into people's food and he exposed it all and then people were like, oh, ew. Then in 1919, he published a novel called The Brass Check, which was sort of an expose on American journalism, uh, yellow journalism and the limitations right. of the free press when you've got a handful of rich guys running everything. Uh, and then a few years after he put that book out, the first code of ethics for journalists was created. Good for him. He was, uh, he was a ball breaker, man. He was out there just <laughs> exposing the dirty underbelly of uh, it was America easy to do. at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, but not many people were doing it. Like, it it took some balls. Right. Um, Time magazine called him a man with every gift except humour and silence. (laughs) Um, Nice. I've been been described the same way. Cameron Riley is a man with every gift except intelligence, good looks, and a sense of humour and and a long penis. (laughs) Uh, Everything else, he's got. He's got in spades. Uh, Upton Sinclair is... Oh, Upton Sinclair is the guy who quipped the famous quip that, in fact, Steve Sammartino used on a recent QAV podcast. It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Cheers. Still works today. Yeah. I imagine Sinclair, was yeah. his books were quite popular in, in, in Moscow, I mean, he, he's showing the weaknesses of uh, capitalism. When you have laissez-faire, you don't have regulations. People can do whatever they want. And so the people with means who own the, the uh, means of production give shitty products and the people don't seem to, to have much of a choice. So I imagine that the jungle and the brass check were quite popular, I guess, among socialists or communists. Yeah, or just people. People who are like... Fuck, yes, we need to do something that too, about this. That too. I, I meant specifically in Russia. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Now, he used uh, that line about it's difficult to, man- difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it when he was campaigning for governor. 
It was his way of explaining why the editors and publishers of the major newspapers in California weren't treating seriously his proposals for old age pensions and other progressive reforms. Right. They can't understand it because their salary depends upon them not understanding it. Right. Uh, if they took it them. seriously, they'd lose their jobs. You can't write, can't yeah. support those sorts of notions in newspapers at the time. Now, Sergei Eisenstein was famous already for making the silent film Battleship Potemkin in 1925. Yeah. In 2012, the British Film Institute named it the 11th greatest film of all time. Uh, wow. You want to talk about the battleship Potemkin, Ray? Yeah, it was. Um, it came out in 1925. It presents a dramatized version of the mutiny that occurred back in 1905 when a crew from the Russian battleship Potemkin rebelled against the officers. And to make a long story short, the Tsarist fleet comes upon it, but the men of those ships refuse to fire on the rebel ship. So it was like, it was just a moment, you know, a good strike against the czar, uh, yay for the, for the people. And because of that, it resonated with the Russian people and obviously with the communists that are, that are going to be coming. So yes, uh, I don't know if it was really meant to be a propaganda piece. Maybe you have something on that, but it certainly did put the people in a good light and the czar in a very bad light. And that was probably its purpose. Do you, do you know why the crew of the battleship Potemkin uh, rebelled in the first place? Um, I'm imagining conditions aboard ship, but I, I don't know specifically. Mm. Yeah, no, they, they refused to eat the borscht, which was made from rotten meat infested with maggots. And the ship's second in command threatened to shoot crew members for their refusal to eat the food. Um, oh my and God. he even went so far as he summoned the ship's marine guards, told them to put a tarpaulin down to protect the ship, protect the ship's deck <gasps> from any blood that uh. might be spilled when he was shooting the crew for not eating the rotten borscht. And so the crew full on mutiny, mutinied. But, um, yeah. Now, yeah, I was just going to yeah. say, but but Captain, have you not read the Jungle by? By Sinclair, this stuff is shit. We cannot eat shit. We refuse to eat shit. That's all. Yeah, the jungle came out the following year. So damn, you know, he's like, no, I don't have a TARDIS, bitches. <laughs> um, so this, uh, yeah, there was obviously the uh, there was a revolution in Russia. For the first revolution in 1905 sort of failed, got shut down. Uh, but this whole story was. Uh, Major inspiration during the 1917 revolution, mm. revolution of these these um, folks on the ship that that stood up and said no. Communists seized upon it as a propaganda symbol. Now the battleship, of course, itself was named after Grigory Potemkin, mm-hmm. Russian military leader, statesman, lover of Catherine the Great, and nice. uh, people may have heard of the term a Potemkin village. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you familiar with that term? Oh, yeah, that's just a Potemkin I've, village. I've heard the phrase, but I don't know what it means. Ah, oh, well, let me enlighten you. Uh, Please, Uncle Kenley. What did your mother Kenley? call you? Uh, baby, baby Cakes? She called me Ray Ray. Um, that's what Fox calls you, yes. Ray Ray. There that's why I try not to flinch when he calls me that. <laughs> 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 I'm like, Mom. I mean, hi, Fox. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Anyway, 
Daddy, you talking to Ray Ray today? Yes, fucks, I'm talking to Ray Ray today. Um, yeah, so Potemkin Village. So it's um, usually used to describe something that is, looks good on the outside, but it's fake. Oh, it's empty. It's a hollow shell right. on the inside. Um, and it comes from this fantastic story. When he was made the governor of Crimea after the Russians took it from the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. uh, apparently Catherine, his lover, the Empress Katarina, yeah. went to visit the area in 1787. And, and according to the story, he supposedly tried to make it look better than it really was <laughs> by building a fake portable village shell wow. that could be deconstructed and then reconstructed later on down the road. So she'd be in a carriage. He'd say, look, mom, <laughs> at the uh, well, he's making, they're making out in the carriage. And right? of course, at the time he's, uh, you know, he's got a nipple in his mouth. He's like, oh, oh, look out the window. See that? Oh, yeah, I built that. Look at that village. She's like, well, that's marvelous. Now get, get back. back what, to- what about my right nipple? It needs some attention too. It's feeling, oh, I'll get back to it. When they passed by, a group of guys would come in, dismantle the fake village. It's just like a Hollywood right. set, right? Holding up. <laughs> they dismantle it, rush down, <laughs> and set it up again, <laughs> you know, 20 miles down yep. the road. And and go, oh, look, there's another village. She goes, oh, look at you. Well done. That's fabulous. You know, keep up the good. All right, what about my clip? Let's, <laughs> let's, get, let's move jump, on jump. Let's keep things moving. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. Now... Uh, modern historians tend to think the story is bullshit, uh, or at least not the full story. Right. Maybe he used something like that to show her what the region would look like when he was finished ah, uh, rebuilding right. it or, or, or upgrading it. Yeah. Or maybe he tarted up some existing villages again to sort of show, well, you yeah. know what, we've got a works program here <laughs> and this is what it's going to look like when we're vision. done. Um but the claim that he was using it to trick her may have been a defamation campaign right. against him, a bit like Caligula making his horse a senator. Um, maybe it's complete bullshit. Maybe he was doing it as a joke. People often think it's it. You know, he seriously did that, but you know, a lot of historians say, yeah, it's probably just you know defamation campaign against him. Um, so anyway, Eisenstein and Sinclair were introduced to each other by Charlie Chaplin, <coughs> famous uh, commie, right. while Eisenstein was visiting America in the early 1930s. Yeah. Now, uh, Eisenstein went and made this Mexican film, Thunder in Mexico. It was a bit of a disaster, actually, a bit of a clusterfuck for a whole variety of reasons. He had a falling out with the Sinclairs, Upton and his yeah. wife. But a version of it made its way back to Hollywood. Hollywood elite saw it, and they sort of saw it as a call to revolution. It's a story about a a young hacienda worker who finds his girl imprisoned and his life is threatened by his master for confronting a hacienda guest for raping the girl. And it was this, you know, stand up against the corrupt elite kind of story. People were like... Yeah, it's awesome. And according to the FBI, there was a turning point for the communists in Hollywood and their uh, uh, leaders in Mm -hmm. Moscow who decided they, you know, we could use Hollywood as a vehicle for spreading our evil message about uh, workers standing up to their rich bosses. Ah. And 
the FBI's concern was that the unions, the writers and the directors in Hollywood were conspiring to insert communist-friendly and anti-American ideology mm-hmm. into the pictures. The famous one is um, It's a Wonderful Life, the Jeremy Stewart film, uh, where the sort of the rich guy, the rich yeah. bad guy, I think it's um, uh, Lionel, uh, what's his fucking name? Uh, I don't what's know. What's his grandfather? I was going to say Lionel Luther, but Fuck. I don't know. Lionel Richie? Yeah, Lionel Richie's uh, famous <laughs> acting performance. Um, I've been alone with you inside my mind. And in my dreams I've kissed your lips a thousand times. I sometimes feel my heart will overflow. Hello? Hello. Is it me you're looking for? <laughs> Fucking Lionel, who's the who's the Hollywood actress who was in uh, ET? Young when she was very oh, young, she's got like a Bar- crooked mouth. Drew Barrymore, no, thank okay. you, motherfucker. Lionel Barrymore oh. plays the uh, rich, <laughs> the rich uh, Harry know, Potter? bad guy Potter? in it. The bad guy, Henry Potter, yeah, the, the Hen- rich bad guy, Henry Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've never seen the film because I can't stand schmaltz, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, apparently it always turns up in all these books is uh, that was a couple of the writers in it were commies and uh, right. they were like, oh, yeah, look, it's they're making out that white, rich white guys are evil, <laughs> don't have everyone's best interests at heart. We yeah. can't have that. Right. Um, yeah. Now, on, on this, I was reading these FBI documents over the course of the week um, and it's fascinating. So some... Uh, uh, among the names that turn up as commun- communist sympathisers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Orson Welles, James Cagney, John Ford, wow. Lucille Ball, Paul Robeson, Gregory Peck, Edward G. Robinson, Jane Wyman, Ronald Reagan's first wife, and, of course, Big Ronnie himself right. is mentioned as being involved. Mm-hmm. Now, Big Ronnie was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, Yeah, I think uh, a little bit later on in the 40s. But um, in the 30s and the 40s, he and his first wife Mm -hmm. and others were involved in meetings or attending meetings where there was uh, stuff about communism discussed. Now, according to Reagan's own autobiography... Mm -hmm. In 1946, the feds approached him uh, and said that the communists were secretly talking shit about him behind his back. <laughs> nice move. And, th- and that partly inspired Ronald Reagan in 1946 to become FBI confidential informant T-10, <laughs> where he was snitching... On his fellow, he was still, he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild at this time, snitching on his co-workers who were, or may be, communist sympathizers. If I could just mention something right before that time, before he was the president, even as far back as September of 1941, in his FBI file, there's an FBI agent, we don't know his name, he writes... 
as a result of my previous position as blank, I became intimately acquainted with the following persons who might be of some assistance to the Bureau, as in someone who would be willing to inform on other people who have comp- uh, communist sympathizers. sympathies. And he, he goes on to write, he goes, I would be happy to contact these people to give them the name of the agent in charge of this area. And, of course, one of the names on that list was Ronald Reagan, uh, Warner Brothers Studio, Hollywood, that kind of thing. But so even before he becomes a president, he's already quit two other union positions because of their um, communist influence. And so he really uh, already seems to have some kind of either grudge against them or again, it's hard to tell because when you read his um, uh, his when he's being questioned by HUAC, you don't know what's real, what's sincere and what what is acting, because some of the lines in it are so cheesy and so patriotic. It's like he's doing a film for the American government. So you just really have to wonder when his distaste or dislike or whatever for communist actors truly began. Let's have a listen to this. For General Electric, here is Ronald Reagan. Good evening. Tonight, John Forsyth stars on the General Electric Theater. And you will see product reports that show how in the things that lead to a better life for us all, at General Electric... Progress is our most important product. Sorry, you got carried away. Yeah, Reagan famously was a Democrat um, earlier in his life and then switched to become a Republican. And the way he always positioned it was, well, I I was concerned about the communists. And, you know, know, the communists, we have to be tough against the communists. And so I I became a Republican. What, What... really happened though. I mean, some of that may be true, but what also happened c- concurrently right. with that is um, his acting career tanked, oh. and uh, he, you know, started to become a corporate shill, a spokesman for GE. Um, <coughs> this is in the, the early fifties. Yeah. Uh, he started uh, becoming a, a shill for GE and uh, General Electric Theatre. And, uh, you know, he, he basically just would travel around the country. Mm-hmm. He would, uh, you know, sh- do, do radio and TV, but also just shill for corporations. They, they figured out, oh, we can get a, a you know, a, a B-level uh, Hollywood actor to right. come out and tell people how awesome we are <laughs> and motivate the, tr- the, the, the employees and this kind of stuff. Deliver the lines. So, um, you know, he uh, in, uh, during that process, he started to become just a, a corporate shill, and then eventually they went. You know what? If we spend enough money, we could probably make our corporate shill the governor of California, <laughs> and that worked. They pulled that off, and they're like, "Shit! If we just spend a little bit more money, we can probably we just keep giving him the scripts right. uh, that we're writing. We can probably. Do you think we could? Could we actually look? Call me crazy, call me stupid. Let me put my uh, crazy hat on. Just listen. In this meeting. Yeah. Look, there are no there are no bad ideas in this meeting. All the, all the crazy ideas out on the table, right. right? Here's mine. What if, what if we could make 
an actor, and somebody everyone knows is an actor, not a, not even a very good actor, but an actor, if we could write the scripts for an actor yeah. and get people to make him president. No, we could never get away with that. They're not that, that no stupid. One, they're, look, look, the American people are stupid, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but they're not stupid enough to elect an actor, well, a previous corporate shill... Yeah. Who who would you know just stand up and read the scripts that we gave him to talk about how great our company was? No one's going to believe that you know we're not still writing the scripts for him, are they? <laughs> Real? Are they? Would that's, they that's see through that? You out. know, I don't know that they would see through yeah. that. You know, listen, it's it's the seventies. People are doing drugs. <laughs> they won't know. Uh, you know, people. Yeah, they won't know. We'll just say, listen. What do we got to lose? What do we got to lose? Yeah. It, also in his um, FBI file, which I think was made public in 1985, if, I'm, if I've got my dates right, uh, the FBI f- file quoted him as saying that the Congress should outlaw the Communist Party as a foreign conspiracy and define communist-controlled groups. And with Reagan's support, <clears throat> and like you said, 1947, he was the Screen Actors Guild president, he helped get through a resolution in November of 1947 asking members to sign affidavits saying that they were not communists before they could be eligible for guild office. So again, even Hollywood is going to this place where parts of the nation are going, look, we need you to sign something saying that you're not communist, then we can work with you, then you're allowed to work here, and you can, and you can further your career. But if you don't, I'm afraid I can't help you. Yeah, so uh, uh, we'll do more on Reagan. I want to. We obviously yeah. we're going to have to do a whole fucking thing on Reagan at some point in this series. If if you're going to wrap up, I just have to tell you one thing because I know that you'll enjoy this. When we were talking about Eisenstein, uh, Sergei, the director, the Russian director, the filmmaker, when he went to Hollywood, they gave him the equivalent of $1.5 million to make a film. So he's like, great, I'll come over with my two assistants and we'll do it. And he had a lot of ideas. Now, unless you actually read about this guy, this guy was out there. I mean, his films are crazy. When when he was in Mexico shooting, he just shot a shit ton of stuff. There wasn't, it wasn't nearly as organized as it should have been, that kind of stuff. But the point is, he's, he's talking to the Hollywood executives. They're bouncing around ideas, uh, trying to come up with what's, you know, we paid this guy one, the equivalent of 1.5 million. What kind of film can we get out of him? So they're trying to work something out. They can't really get anything. And they go, oh, by the way, here's this um, motion picture, uh, motion picture production code of 1930. That's basically the do's and don'ts of what you can make. And it, it, and it, it was come up with, it, it was created in 1929 by a Catholic layman and by a Jesuit priest. Father Daniel A. Lord, and they created these standards, and the studios took them on. And you can imagine some of the some of the uh, the basics is like you can't make a film that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Okay, that sounds pretty good. It's the 1930s, but then they got into specifics. They said in your films you can't have any kind of sexual relations between blacks and whites. You can't have people who are understood to have sex if they're not married. If you have any criminals in your film, by the end of the film, they have to be punished, and no criminal can be allowed to look sympathetic. All authority figures have to be treated with respect in your film, and the clergy cannot be portrayed as 
comedic characters or villains. And, and only under special circumstances could politicians, police officers, and judges be villains as long as it was made clear that they were exceptions to the rule. And of course, no cursing, no homosexuality, that kind of stuff. And by the time Sergei looks over this list, he goes, I can't make a film. My my films are about making people think and capturing the nuances and the beauty of things. I can't do anything with this list. So he, and I think it's Paramount, I can't remember. They're going to go their separate ways, which is kind of how he gets down to Mexico. But they were already starting to tighten everything up. And it was, it was I mean, if you compare that kind of culture to what's going on in France or something like that, where sex is a lot more relaxed. Again, the Americans are just already tightening up their, the religious establishments already got their claws into them. And it's even permeated down to what you can or cannot do in films. I mean, so the clergy are certainly gaining a lot of power. And as we're going to see in the upcoming video, um, upcoming shows, they're going to get even more and they're going to try to use it for their own ends. Yeah. Eisenstein said, I'm going to go back to Soviet <laughs> Russia where I have more freedom with what I can. <laughs> <laughs> more I gotta go like back to my movies. Back to the USSR. Yeah, yeah I gotta go back. Yeah, <laughs> but he literally—they—they they literally <laughs> took most of the money back. Said, "Look, we couldn't figure," it. and he walked away because they couldn't agree on anything. It was insane. <sighs> yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, all we got time for this episode. Uh, we'll be back next time with. Uh, we're going to get into the uh, Christians. How the Christians turned. <sighs> on FDR in and the New Deal in the next episode. Uh, looking forward to that. That's a great story. All right, we're out. No, where is it? An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Cuba. The purpose of these...